Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And it's good to get back with our Podcast in a Podcast Salon 2 series. But first of all, I have to admit to being seriously remiss in not bringing you up to speed on the adventures of Lex Pelger, who brought us the first 35 Salon 2 podcasts. Although I've made brief mentions of his current whereabouts, I should have made a bigger deal about it. However, uh, well, I felt that, first of all, the details of Lex's life should be made here in a Salon 2 podcast, which hasn't happened for a couple months. And secondly, it seemed to me that Lex would be the best person to bring us up to date himself. And I'm sure that he'll be doing that very soon. But here are the headlines about Lex. The big news is that he's now the father of a baby girl. Next comes the news that Lex has a regular job which shouldn't be a surprise considering the fact that he now has more people to take care of than just himself. One other thing is that Lex is doing a podcast for the cannabis company that he's working for. And those and other stories, I'm sure Lex will be telling us himself in the weeks ahead when he returns to Salon 2 with more podcasts. But today our host is Alexa, not to be confused with Lex, and she'll be joined by her sister Kat, In the weeks ahead, we're going to be hearing more podcasts that the Lakey sisters are now developing. And for their first podcast, which we're about to listen to, they've included two topics. First, we'll hear them speaking with my old friend Scott Olson on the final day of what was the largest exhibit of Amazonian art yet to be held in the United States. Scott and I, uh, (laughs) well, we've had some exciting adventures together in the past, and so it was wonderful that he is now featured here in the salon. I should have interviewed him myself a long time ago, which, well, that's why it's so good to get some younger people like the Lakey Sisters and Lex Pelger finding interesting people to interview when I fall down on the job. The second part of today's podcast is, I believe, unique in the annals of psychedelic podcasting. Alexa and Kat interviewed their parents about impressions they had when the family had a psychedelic experience together. Now, I've been fortunate to have had psychedelic experiences with my own children, but oh, what I wouldn't give to be able to have done so with my dad and mother before they died. What a gift to be able to not only be completely free to talk with one's parents about psychedelics, but on top of that, to be able to experience these important substances together. I hope that you have that opportunity yourself one day. So now, sit back and join me as we listen to Alexa and Kat, the Lakey Sisters. From the California Redwoods to the Peruvian Amazon, two sisters explore psychedelic culture, its history and its future. Welcome to Find the Others. Greetings and welcome to Find the Others, the newest podcast on the Psychedelic Salon. I'm your host, Alexa. I'm an artist, writer, and an entheogen enthusiast. And my name is Kat. I'm the co-host. I'm a part-time video editor, and I'm currently in training to be an ayahuascara. I'm heading to Peru later this week, and I'll be broadcasting from the Sacred Valley and from the heart of the Amazon rainforest. And I'll be broadcasting my portion of the podcast from the San Francisco Bay Area. Kat and I are sisters. I'm the older one, for what it's worth, 
and we're each going to collect interviews and stories from our journeys and encounters with fellow psychonauts. From microdosing in Silicon Valley and the roots of the electric Kool-Aid acid test, to speaking with indigenous tribes in the Amazon. But first, Florida. We've been in central Florida for the past week, visiting our folks and our grandfolks. So before I go home to California and Kat goes back to Peru, we're together for one more day. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Scott Olson. He's a curator and owner of the most comprehensive visionary art collection from the Peruvian Amazon. Scott first received international acclaim by successfully decoding the geometric mysteries of Plato. His book, The Golden Section, Nature's Greatest Secret, is an international bestseller. He graciously gave us a tour of some 95 paintings at the Appleton Museum of Art. It was the last day of the Mysteries of the Amazon exhibit, which showcased the work of Pablo Amarengo and his students. We'll also be talking with our parents! Wait, 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 don't go just yet! They're fellow psychonauts and artists, and we're going to discuss some of their most interesting psychedelic experiences from uh, an older generation's perspective. This podcast is meant to give you a quick glimpse at who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. So, let's start things off at the Appleton Museum in Ocala, Florida, where we spoke with Dr. Olson. So, we're here today at the Appleton Museum of Art in Ocala, Florida, for the final day of the Mysteries of the Amazon exhibit. On display are 95 paintings by Peruvian artist Pablo Maringo and his students, all from the private collection of Dr. Scott Olson. Dr. Olson is here with us now. Uh, thank you for being with us. Oh, my, my pleasure, and thank you for uh, recording this. And of the 95 paintings, I should say 10 are Pablo Amaringo originals, mm -hmm. and 85 are his students uh, um, who are now growing up, and uh, I buy, buy their paintings. Uh, but it's probably about half of my collection. Okay. Well, they're absolutely astounding. Um, so the first question I had was, how did you acquire this incredibly unique personal collection? Well, in 2001, on the way into the Amazon rainforest to work with a group of mestizo shamans, um, I was introduced to Pablo Amaringo. Let's see, that was 2001. Bought my first painting then. And I've been back another, what, um, uh, five times into the rainforest, uh, twice up into the mountains, uh, the highlands. Uh, but each time I would stop, visit with Pablo, buy more paintings, and then I realized he had all these students from the Usco IR school that he'd started. And so I started collecting their paintings. So every time Olson came to Bacalpa, mm -hmm. the word got out. They'd line the streets with their paintings. And I kept buying and buying because I fell in love with them. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful. What, what first attracted you to uh, Amazonian shamanism and to ayahuasca? <clears throat> well, I'm really a student of the ancient wisdom and... Uh, have worked with uh, entheogens, psychotropics, uh, all the way back into my college days, and had studied the Eleusinian mysteries in particular. And I, it dawned on me as I was reading and studying the subject that this was really the rebirth in uh, modern culture of the Eleusinian mysteries, which also, it was a nine-day event, drinking the, uh, the Kaikian, um, much like the Odinic mysteries, uh, uh, Odin hangs upside down on the grazel after ingesting. Probably Amanita muscaria discovers the uh, the mathematics of nature in the runes. Um, and I had also become, through the ancient wisdom, extremely interested in the mathematical keys of nature, particularly the golden ratio. And I realized in my study of near-death experiences, parallel things were happening with some of the ayahuasca experiences 
where you gain access, and, and the mystery schools too, by the way. Madame Blavatsky makes it clear that these geometric keys were given out in the uh, ancient mystery schools, which were also ingesting sacred substances. So I was uh, quickly drawn to the ayahuasca experience, and I wasn't let down, and I can tell you more about that, but had incredible visionary experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, so you spoke earlier of the Usco IR. Is I saying that right? Yes, Usco IR Amazonian School of Painting. Could you give us a little more background on that? Sure, absolutely. That was founded by Pablo Almarengo along with Luis Eduardo Luna, mm -hmm. and uh, it was really Luna's idea to get this going because he had discovered Pablo and his work, and uh, Pablo has had such a big heart and loved the children, and there are many disadvantaged children. So they decided they would uh, um, give out the paints, uh, the brushes, the uh, paper and canvases, and teach the kids how to respect nature, how to uh, mimic it, how to draw it, and paint it very carefully. And then in many cases, as time went on, they also had their ayahuasca experiences, not all of them, which is interesting because Pablo then did later. He stopped doing the ayahuasca and paint, did his paintings from memory. Mm -hmm. But he also taught them how to be good people, how to uh, play musical instruments, uh, speak English so they become more international in their approach. And so these, these kids uh, were really trained, rounded off into really good uh, character building people. Mm -hmm. And what kind of effects has the school had on Pacalpa and the people that live there? Oh, well, it's uh, Pacalpa, of course, is, is kind of a hotbed um, little community in that area. Uh, but Pablo Amaringo's presence there and then all of the artwork has drawn many, many peoples into the region. And then, of course, people who are then going to go further into experiences in the rainforest, that's kind of a stopping spot. Mm -hmm. So anytime I would come into Peru, I'd fly into Lima, then over the mountains into Pacalpa, and then we'd take the journey out to the Ukiyele River and then go up into the headwaters of the Amazonian system. But many people do that and come to visit this Usco Ayer School, which continues today. Mm -hmm. I, I've noticed, you know, as we looked at some of these paintings, that there's this kind of commonality in the imagery. Um, and I, I imagine part of that is because they're all going to the same school and being taught in a similar method. But also, if it's being pulled from these visionary states, what do you think causes this commonality in the, the visions? Well, one of the things in particular that's quite common and is universal, not just in these paintings, is the presence of various animals and plants that are um, actually universal worldwide. Uh, I'll give you an example. One in particular is the large cat. And when you go through the exhibit, you'll see a little panel out there about big cats because I've seen them in Africa with the shamans who wear the pelts uh, in King Tut's tomb. There's an image of one of the priests wearing the, the pelt. Dionysus rides on the back of a leopard. Weechel Indians, when they have their peyote experiences, come out and do these beautiful sacred geometric constructions uh, with beads on the uh, jaguar heads. Um, but again, it's, it's basically a universal and I've come to the conclusion because I, I have had real uh, direct experiences with the jaguars. That's kind of my favorite. They're the top of the food chain. 
And as a result, all the consciousness of all the other plants and animals, and here's your representative of the rainforest. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you just flat out, the big thing that I experienced is the rainforest and uh, animals and the abuse that humans pour upon them. And, and even in our scientific method, it's nasty, it's terrible. Uh, the plants and the animals, that those medicines, those spirits, they're fully aware Mm-hmm. of our attitude and the way we treat them and therefore with the shamanic approach in the indigenous cultures that kind of gentle reciprocity uh, respect and treatment participant observation as we do in these ayahuasca experiences as, as you're now getting deeply into cat um, it's a way that the, the plants and the animals will respond they teach us and, and now the, the people who are working on the genome and DNA and all the most advanced stuff and in botany and in chemistry and in physics, they're going into the rainforest to learn from the plant teachers. Yeah, like Jeremy Narby. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Jeremy Narby's book, The Cosmic Serpent and the DNA Molecule, I rank as the best book of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I've given it to all my teachers from all different fields within the ancient wisdom and and, uh, high energy physics. Etc. Houston Smith, all the other before he passed, and um, there is a chapter in there, biology's blind spot. That's another big thing about what's really going on in nature, with intention and purpose, and something bigger is going on, and we've been missing that. So yes, Jeremy Narby, tremendous. Yeah, yeah, high top of top of the class. Um, so I know you have an interest in the field of sacred geometry. Um, could you talk about the connection between sacred geometry and the visionary aspect of the ayahuasca experience? Certainly, certainly. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I had found was that people in near-death experiences, when they, they come up, a, well, sometimes up a tunnel, but when they have the life review and time stops and they move into a kind of a non-local space is no limitation time is no limitation but in some cases um, the the mysteries of the patterns of nature are revealed and I early on as a platonic um, I guess a student of Plato let's call it that and Pythagoras and this ancient wisdom I began to realize that there was a key to nature um, hidden, but also very evident in what's called the golden section, golden ratio, golden mean, which then gets translated into Fibonacci numbers and then into what are called Lucas numbers. And we find it in the microtubules of the DNA. When you look at the phalanges of the finger, you realize they're all in golden ratio. Everything in nature is resonating to this. And what I found was that everything being vibratory, everything being resonant, you attune. We're hardwired for spiritual experience. And uh, it's both within, and so all of it is without. Uh, When I would uh, work on the brow center and uh, work particularly towards getting synesthetic experiences, I would use a pine cone. I'd flip it upside down and look at the patterns because those are all Fibonacci spirals integrating uh, or head of a sunflower. That would be another typical one. Mm -hmm. And then I started to realize, oh my God, it's everywhere in nature. And then I had in 2005 a major epiphany 
where I can't just say I was out of my body, I was both out and in and connected to the cosmos, to nature, to the plant kingdom. And I'd studied this for 40 years, but suddenly the confidence that I gained because I saw how in fact it was in reality the logos behind all existence. And that epiphany was so tremendous that I was awake for 19 days. I could not sleep a wink, actually 23 days, but I slipped out of consciousness for about an hour twice during that time. But 19 days without a, a, a wink of sleep, and it was so exhilarating. And within six months, I had written the golden section, Nature's Greatest Secret, which is now in nine languages. It is an international bestseller. And uh, again, every time I go into the rainforest, I'm, I'm working with and seeing those patterns. And then, of course, they're reflected in the, uh, the, uh, the artwork itself, especially the synesthetic experiences that result with the intense colors. Because, again, everything is vibratory. And so instead of just uh, the occipital and different parts of the brain picking up, the, you go into synesthesia. And to me, that artwork is an example of synesthetic experience. Definitely. You, you talked about how you had this um, epiphany while you were in that kind of uh, state. Mm-hmm. And I've heard of lots of other people talking about how they've also reached their own kind of epiphanies, whether it's uh, scientific or whether it's something that's almost therapeutic in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like Western civilization could certainly use a dose of that right now, but how can we benefit from the knowledge of, of ayahuasca without um, really kind of culturally appropriating it and taking away and not giving back to the Amazon? Yes, that's that's a really excellent question. One of the things that happened to me was I was taken through an extremely painful experience, and you'll see it on a uh, uh, text panel in the North Bay uh, on the wall in the middle in the back there. And uh, after the experience of, of the pain and suffering of the animal kingdom in particular, and humanity, and how we just mistreat one another and all this crazy uh, nationalism, patriotism, ego, ego building, megalomania, uh, belligerence, uh, but abuse of the animals. And so they kind of threw me a bone. I say they because there were, there were beings that were kind of guiding me in, in the process, not just mamacita. It was even broader. And uh, so they threw me the bone. And the bone was, okay, we'll give you some insight into the future Buddha, Christ, whatever, uh, Buddha consciousness, uh, Kalki, Maitreya Buddha, whatever it might be, I'm in Mahdi, that the future world teacher, universal, is going to go beyond what we've got now. And they said, okay, there's three things, and we'll give them to you. First was, we got to practice the golden and silver rule. It's in every religion, but do they practice it? It's got to be both. You do good things, you don't do bad things. You do unto others what you'd want them to do unto you, and you don't do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do unto you. And every single religion has at least one or the other. You've got to have both. Mm-hmm. But the key was, they told me, that the you has to be your Atman or higher self, not your groveling, little, egotistical, nonsensical mm-hmm. self. Secondly, ahimsa. Nonviolence towards all living things. Mm-hmm. Period. 
Now, <clears throat> that's a tough one for many, um, but many tribes, they still, they're not vegetarian necessarily, but there's a way to not mistreat animals. Certainly mm-hmm. killing animals uh, for trophies and uh, uh, torture and abuse, and there's something we've got to move towards this ahimsa, nonviolence towards all living things, because I was then shown the vision that that is what leads to terrorism. Once you're willing to treat animals as if they don't have uh, feeling, mm-hmm. uh, see the future, regret the past, which we're now learning, and they're much more intelligent in their experiences, their epistemology, their way of knowing is in many ways advanced to ours. And that's one of the things, of course, that I've learned with the ayahuasca experiences is the supersensory enhanced uh, perceptional states that the animals have in a way of attuning and the synesthetic experience. The third thing, the toughest, my students have a difficulty with this, uh, consider the other first. But you have to be reasonable with that because you can't just you'd be taken a, uh, advantage of. Uh, but if everybody did that, we would, in fact, be in the Garden of Eden. It would be heaven on earth. Uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, as an example, expressed it. The kingdom of heaven is spread upon earth, but man does not see it. It's there. But the other vision I got, which ties up with this, and I won't get political, but I will say this. Uh, I saw the vision of Nero burning uh, Rome and fiddling away, and now we have, when we elect dictators, uh, megalomaniacs, people who work with the Russian mafia and and launder money and do all these bad and destroy the environment, Mm -hmm. and we allow this to happen, we turn, turn our face the other way. We allow the destruction of our culture, we fail the world, and people need to begin to speak out about it. And that's what we can return to the rainforest, is a respect and being very careful who we put into power uh, so we don't keep destroying the world. One of the things that I found that, again, with the ayahuasca experience that's uh, similar to near-death experiences is you begin to realize there's intention and purpose. Now, I'm not saying it's a cookie-cutter like, okay, here it is. But as you know, many near-death experiencers, they get very frustrated because they realize they're off course from the intention of a life, and they change ways through a transformation, through an epiphany. I found the same thing happens with people with the ayahuasca. And, of course, I had a perinatal experience near the time of... uh, uh, birth, which kind of set me on a path, and I must tell you, writing my golden section book and its uh, success, and doing this uh, this show, uh, Mysteries of the Amazon, uh, visionary paintings of Pablo Amarengo and his students, is part of the fulfillment of my purpose in life. And so, thank heavens for ayahuasca. But it's not for everybody. That's probably the thing I should end with. Is um, you know, it's not an easy path. It's a, if it's done right, I find it to be extremely painful. You must face yourself. You must deal with that. It's like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And most myths are a descent into the underworld. And you've got to uh, face yourself and, and overcome the lower self. Find the philosopher's stone, the pearl of great price, the holy grail. And then you kind of, you do ascend up through uh, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces, and you come to Aries, and you come to the spring equinox, and there's resurrection. 
All of that stuff is integrated into the ayahuasca experience, but most people don't realize it. And so unless a person is really ready, it's all set and setting, as you know. Your mental intention, your set, and then the spiritual surroundings, but you've got to be extremely careful. A lot of people, this is probably not the right path for them. There are other approaches because the dimethyltryptamine is a natural product of the human body. And there's endogenous uh, DMT, as you know, with someone like Bruce Damer. Mm-hmm. And I learned that when I was a bodybuilder years ago by going through the pain barrier. There are ways to use pranayama, rhythmic breathing, uh, Wim Hof, all these different Uh, approaches um, can lead to the same goal. However, ayahuasca is a a pretty rapid approach if you're prepared. Prepared. Hopefully you're prepared. You're going back in two weeks. (laughs) I think so. Well, it's an honor to meet you and to know that you're you're following that path. I'm so happy for you. And thank you for sharing these paintings with all with all of us too. It's, I mean, we know that tons of people have passed through this exhibit, and it's it's been just a lovely thing that you've done. My thank pleasure. And then uh, for you folks later this afternoon, two thirty, mm-hmm. if, if you you want to be yeah, here, yeah, of course, definitely. Okay. <laughs> we will be there. So this next segment is from a talk that we had with our seventy-year-old father about his experience with psilocybin mushrooms. Enjoy. All right, we're here in central Florida with uh, mom and dad. We're here visiting them before Kat heads off to Peru and kind of have a week together as a family before we all part ways. Other than mom and dad, who are stuck in central Florida. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, Kat and I are very fortunate in the fact that our parents are fellow psychonauts to some degree. Uh perhaps haven't delved as deeply into it as we have, or as frequently, but uh, nonetheless, they've each had their own profound psychedelic experiences, and um, that's kind of what we wanted to talk to them about today. Could you talk a little bit about um, your experience with psilocybin mushrooms? Uh, what what interested you in them in the first place? Um... I don't know. I'm I'm not of really the uh, the drug generation. I'm from I'm older than that. So I started off just mainly drinking. I don't think I even used pot uh, to an extent until the mid '70s or someplace in that in that uh, that era. So, but mushrooms and acid and all that stuff were interesting to me. I just didn't. Uh, I'm an artist by profession, uh, a cartoonist, and um, in my line of work, anything that alters reality a little bit is interesting to me anyway. So uh, I've always had kind of an interest in it, but uh, I didn't know anybody that, uh, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not one of those people who just goes out and finds mushrooms somewhere and eats them, you know, just yeah. on, on faith or uh, something. So, uh, no, my uh, my delinquent daughters introduced me to them. <laughs> About ten years ago, right? I, yeah, it all blends together, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and you guys were kind of hesitant to experiment with them. I mean, for you being a, you know, your first exposure to it, I mean, Mom, you had done psychedelics back in the, you know, in the 70s, but, um, you know, you hadn't actually done mushrooms back then, you know, just LSD. Yeah, no, I've done other things, just not mushrooms. I mean, as far as psychedelics are concerned. Yeah. 
and I'd I'd had some bad experiences in my childhood or later in my after after my childhood, but um, that I thought if I got into that sort of thing, I might have some an experience that just brought that back in um, big doses, and I didn't want that. I don't want to relive uh, that particular era of my life. Do you think that that was because they the media portrayed and movies portrayed bad trips? You know, that, that because they were trying to push their agenda kind of against the Well, yeah. Else. I mean, my entire education is based on movies I've seen. So I, if, <laughs> if you see enough movies and television, you eventually can link it all together into this tremendous source of knowledge. What did you, uh, you know, before you, you ate mushrooms, what did you think it was going to be? Like pink elephants on parade kind of a thing, or...? No, that's more or less how I see everything now. Uh, but but uh, no, I, I'm not sure what I thought it was going to be. I Again, I am influenced by movies, so I saw it as a Peter Fonda, the trip kind of thing. Where, But every time anybody tries visually to show hallucinogenics, they can't really do it justice yet because they don't really have the technology to do it, I don't think. It's not technologically possible yet. No, right? I guess not. I don't know. I think we're getting closer oh. to that. You know, there's a lot of uh, people who are trying to create 360 VR environments that are as close to the psychedelic realm as they can get. But even then, it's like a cave painting to, compared to what it you really is you really experience. So, you're a cartoonist and a writer. Explain or describe as best you can to us, if you will, uh, what was it like when it first started kicking in? How did you notice the effects coming on of the mushrooms? You went out to draw, right? No, so I, I went out to my studio and was sitting out there at the drawing board, and I have a yellow pad. Everything I've practically ever written is written on yellow pad in, long, in longhand. And so I've got stacks of unused ideas and short stories that I started and didn't finish. But uh, I thought I'd write a description of what, what the uh, sensation was. And I sat there for a long time, and I finally started to get bored with it. And I was thinking of myself as Dr. Jekyll, you know, where I, well, I've taken the injection 20 minutes ago, and now there's no effects so far, you know. And, and I'm writing stuff on, on the, the paper. And I start to notice that the letters, certain letters, Fs in particular, are beginning to peel off the line and sag below it, you know. And I'm thinking, well, that's odd. That's an odd thing. You know, and I was thinking, maybe I'm losing my... And I thought, I can balance I can balance them perfectly on that line if I have to. And it's starting to take effect. And you see all the word effect fall away because it gets two Fs in it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I start to pay attention. And I look at my arm, my right arm. For the first time, I saw it as a mechanical device almost. like, But, but an organic one where you could see all the all the things inside of it, but not to the point where it was scary, like the blob where you, you take your arm out and you can, it's it's just meat. It was like a functioning tool. And whatever I was thinking was coming down that arm and extending out into whatever creative thing I was doing. Hmm. You mean you were sort of acting as a conduit? That's what it felt like, yeah. Like or I, I grabbed the conduit accidentally and now I, I was part of the conduit, yeah. So I thought, well, I'll go in and talk to the girls about this. This is interesting. Once they see this transparent arm, they're going to be really <laughs> impressed. And I got as far as the garage, I think, and there were stains on the floor. And I started paying attention to them, first thinking, well, 
That's funny. These stains must be from the previous owner because we don't park our car this far over. That's the beginning of the thought process. And then the stains sort of moved underneath the concrete a little bit, almost like a snake, just a big but a big snake, <laughs> you know, big enough that you're close enough to the texture that you don't see it as a snake quite yet. It's just moving. And then I looked down, and I could see multiple levels below. And and I didn't look up, because if there were multiple levels up, that would have really freaked me out. But multiple <laughs> levels below was bad. It was like a glass floor with lots of other, lots of smaller moving stuff below it. Forever infinity, as far as my eyesight could determine. And I thought, probably not a good thing to stand here, because I think this is really looks like... I think the concrete is the illusion part. I think this is what it's yeah. really like. You're standing on, on an imaginary plane in some sort of big game. So I wandered into the other room, couldn't find anybody in the house, including the dog. And I just stood there at the back uh, door and looked out at the leaves and all the stuff, and then everything looked alive to me and everything was talking and, uh, in its own way. And I thought, that's really cool. And, uh, anyhow, well, a couple of revelations, and then we're off. Did you have any, you said that one of the things that you were concerned about was some sort of, you know, negative flashbacks and stuff like that. Did it have any sort of uh, negative effects, or was it, did it have any therapeutic effects, or just mostly kind of a fun visual thing? I don't really know much about uh, therapy. I've talked to a couple of people over the years, and I don't think they know any more about it than I do. Uh, and they were supposed to be trained people. So I, I have a lot of guilt about things that happened in my family that if I had done this or that differently, it might have changed the outcome. And anybody that has tragedy in their family probably feels that way. You know, the things you should have said the last time you saw somebody or what you could have done that would have changed this incident or if you'd only left a half hour later or all those alternative things. And so I felt a, a great deal of guilt. And one of the things that the mushrooms passed along to me, when I say the mushrooms, I'm not picturing it as God. I'm thinking of it as a bunch of little pink-capped elf-type things that are all talking in unison like little ducks. But anyway, what it passed along to me was that, I sh that the guilt doesn't do me any good. There's no reason to carry any guilt. That it's, it's a completely worthless... Those things are done. Those things are, are gone... You know, just like the floor in the garage. So, anyhow, no big revelation. I mean, that let that, it go. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. There's no reason to carry the guilt. I'm adopted, so I, I may be Jewish on one side because I can't give up all the guilt. It's part of what motivates <laughs> me. But I've given up a lot of it. Are you ha any happier now than before? I don't know. I'm getting older, so it balances itself out. <laughs> Would you do them again? Yeah, provided I trusted the people I got them from, yeah. <laughs> you know, and not just because my wife happened to talk to somebody who knew somebody who happened to know somebody, oh, or find them in writing it. Yeah, who happened to be writing their quad <laughs> in a cow basket. No, no, and he found these stuck between the wheels and said, "Hey, aren't these?" Uh, no, I, no, under super, under reasonably uh, controlled control conditions. Yeah. yeah. So this last segment is from a conversation about psychedelics that we had with our mom while we were on a road trip to Sarasota, Florida. Enjoy. With 
LSD, I was almost looking into a kaleidoscope of myself where I was spiraling inward and inward and inward and inward further and further into my own psyche to the point where I, at one point, completely understood what it was like to be dad. And it was an odd feeling. We were sitting, it was Megan and Kat and I all sitting there coloring our mandala coloring book, tripping balls. And at this point, I thought we were coming down. You know, we've been doing it for hours and hours. And suddenly this, like, it washed over me, this feeling of, I can't even explain it. It was, it was complete empathy. I could suddenly understand what it was like to be someone who I'm constantly arguing with, you know? I mean, especially back then, Dad and I were always arguing. So to, to be able to go into that perspective and to understand him and to love him because I suddenly understood exactly what he has gone through in his life was really, really powerful. And I think that that's one of the best things that psychedelics has to offer Western civilization is that we are so involved in our own experience, especially with social media, where it's like, look what I ate for lunch today. You know, cool, that's that's great. But ultimately, (laughs) Kat threw me off, Jesus. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, what it's really about is trying to find a way to relate to the other. Not just finding the others, but finding a way to relate to everybody. Because I guarantee you that as much as we are unhappy about the present uh, political state, that if we suddenly knew exactly what it felt like to be Donald Trump, that we could even feel empathy for him. I mean... I think that that's what we need to focus on is instead of there being all of this, you know, passing blame and anger towards one another, even especially towards us who, someone you don't agree with, um, to be able to empathize and to relate to somebody, even though they're the polar opposite of you, is going to be how we heal this divide. Well, and it's all about stepping outside of your own ego. You know, you can see outside of that, you can see what it would be like to be, you know, your, your dad or your sister or the president or a dog or a cat or, you know, anyone. You can, you can put your consciousness into the, the perspective of anyone else, and that's the root of empathy. And humans have the capacity to do that in our day-to-day lives, just imagining ourselves in other people's shoes. But psychedelics kind of force you to do that. I mean, I've been able to put my own perspective into, you know, trees and even inanimate objects. Things like Russian yeah. nesting dolls, where it's just like, if there's enough love and intention inside an object even even if it's made of dead materials maybe everything's alive well the last the last time that i did mushrooms i felt that connection to whatever it is the entity or the all i call it the all that is because i think it's all of us we're all one thing basically we're all part of the universe and the universe here's my theory my theory is and i know you're not going to use this in the podcast my theory is that The universe is trying to get to the point where all of its tiny little tendrils and pieces all over the universe are are aware. And that's what it's working toward. So whenever you do psychedelics, you become more aware. So it's a good thing. And I'm sorry, I'm sort of rambling. But what I wanted to say was that I felt so connected to it and so good that I walked to the back door of our house in Phoenix and I was looking out and just thinking to it in my head saying why can't I always have this connection with you why can't I always feel this way and I looked outside and all of a sudden I saw awareness 
in every single thing that was living out there. Everything. Not that they had faces, but they practically did. Even stuff that wasn't alive, yes. though, right? I and, mean, yeah, and it was all there. And it said to me, because could, do you think you could live your day-to-day life seeing things like this? And I said, nope. I don't think so. No, we wouldn't be able... I mean, if we saw things the way that we do on psychedelics, we wouldn't be able to do anything. We wouldn't be able to, like, make a meal for ourselves. Well, have psychedelics shown you that we're all the same thing? That we're all pretty much the same? Not that we're the same thing, but that we're all connected. We're We're definitely not all the same. I mean, we are and are not. I mean, one of the things I learned from working on the Human Genome Project was that... (laughs) We're like 99.9% the same biologically. And I'm not talking about you and me because we're family. I'm saying 99% of my DNA with someone across the planet that I've never met before is the same. But it's that 1% or that I think it might be point. It's way less than 1%. 1%, I think. I think we're 99.9%. I think we're 99% the same as chimps. Right. So I think it's 99.9% related to each other. And that 1%, that 0.1% is... Responsible it's for every war on the planet. Else. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's catalogs of information in that 0.1% as far as what differentiates us between each other. The way I've kind of come to see it is that we are all one in the spiritual domain. and I guess that's what I mean. You know, it's controversial to talk about spirit a little bit. I mean, it shouldn't be. But no, I'm because very... there's no science backing spirit because there's no scientist who's like, I found it, I found the spirit. And they maybe maybe never will, but, um, you know, from my ayahuasca experiences and just all my psychedelic experiences, the, um, you know, the, there's a spirit in all human beings and maybe in all, all beings. Everything living has a spirit and that spirit is one. So when we kill each other, it's just like this absurd thing. It's just so crazy. You see people doing the most horrific things, and you think, how? How Or or I mean, not even killing each other. You know, killing, you know, and abusing animals, for example. It's something that Scott Olson is going to talk about in our interview later on in this episode. Um, The way that we treat our animals. And this is not some vegan thing. I'm not, that's not where I'm going with this because I do eat meat. But what I'm saying is that the way that we treat our animals. By abusing them, or throwing them out of car windows, or making them fight each other, or making them jump through hoops. Or factory farming or, them. Yeah, any of these things. I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. You, you look at these in indigenous cultures where they had respect for the animals they killed. And they used every bit of them, which uh, I guess we do that. I mean, in some sense, we use every, as much as we can. But that's not because we respect them. It's because we don't want to lose money on that process, you know, and we're, well, we can turn this into hot dogs, whatever. Yeah. But uh, it's... Or cat food. Or, yeah, exactly, or cat or dog food, but... It's making everyone sick. It's making everyone sick, because it's not, we're not doing this with any sort of respect for, um, for the life that we took. No, you're right. Okay, here's something that I would like to talk about. In terms of LSD as opposed to plant-based hallucinogens, mm-hmm. do you feel like there's an actual spirit in the plant? Yes. You do? Yeah, of but course. The, and LSD is a chemical that was produced in a laboratory, so maybe that's why you don't connect with the same kind of a spirit. I, I See, I felt there was a spirit in the LSD experience. I just felt like it was my own spirit being reflected back at me. Yeah, that's what Alexa said, too. Um, 
Well, then mine's pretty zany. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> but you think each? Do you think that each plant has its own sp- own special spirit? Right. Or do you yeah. think? Yeah. Maybe even each individual mushroom has its own spirit. Who knows? It might not be that every single every time you eat mushrooms, you're interacting with the same spirit. It might be that you know, depending on the batch or the particular. I mean, that's why they say that when you are, if you are to grow these yourself, that you need to grow them with intention. Because if you grow them and you're like, I'm going to make so much money, I'm going to make so much money, that's not what it's about. And your mushrooms are not going to like that intention. I I believe that mushrooms are a sacrament. Well, and the, the same... The same intention is sort of required when people go harvest uh, the plants to make ayahuasca, too. You're supposed to have that intention when you go into the forest to, yeah, I would to so. harvest the copy and the, the chacruna. I worry about that with everybody, with it becoming so popular, if they're just going to denude the rainforests of these plants. Well, I think these retreats, you know, it'd be interesting if, like, a lot of them start focusing on replanting Banisteriopsis copy, if that was, like, a big part of... Um, the retreats too, you know, because like tons of people are going to them. But if that was a part of it, it was like you go out into the woods and you plant a new. You should plant yeah. a new copy plant because it's like we can't, you know, we can't let that go extinct. That's no, horrible. that would be horrible. What fucking about the horrible. ayahuasca vine? You know, all the pictures that I see online and the ones that we've drawn, they're maybe five or six inches wide, and they I take a long time. To how grow. long does it take yeah. for a vine like that to grow? A really long time. Probably too long. 40 years, you know? Yeah. And then someone just cuts it down for... Well, then we should grow it. We should grow it everywhere. I mean, yeah. there's no reason not to. It's not illegal. It well, should be everywhere. I'd grow it if I could. I mean, we live in Florida. Everything grows here. Well, that's our show, folks. Thank you for tuning in to our very first podcast. We have some very interesting guests on the horizon, including what might end up being a bit of a controversial discussion with Robert Forte about the light and dark side of psychedelics. We hope you'll join us again for what's sure to be an interesting conversation. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or connections to people we might interview next, please email us at findtheothers42 at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Alexa. And I'm Kat. Onwards and upwards.